Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Hey, uh, yeah, I'm excited to dive into a new series today with you all. Um, it's going to be called Just I Am. I am. And I'll get to what we're going to be looking at in this series specifically more in just a moment. You can go ahead, if you have your Bible, if you brought your Bible with us, go ahead and open on up to John. We're going to be in the book of John in chapter 8 is where we're going to start today. And as you're getting there, as you maybe open up your phone, open up your Bible, I just want to tell you a little bit about my favorite basketball player, LeBron James. If that's okay for just a minute. Uh, don't be mad at me because it's not Michael Jordan, okay? I didn't get to grow up watching Michael Jordan in his prime. I did, however, get to grow up watching LeBron James in his prime. And so, Bear with me for just a moment as I kind of tell you a little bit about LeBron. So he uh, obviously went to St. Vincent St. Mary High School. Uh, he was just a few years ahead of me, really. is probably why I just had so much interest in following LeBron's career. It's because that's the guy that I wanted to play like, but the guy I could never actually live up to being like as good as him. So uh, obviously gets drafted to go play for the Cleveland Cavaliers, his home state, his home city. John's raising the roof over there. And he uh, played with a bunch of guys that probably John doesn't even know. Like you couldn't even name a lot of the guys on LeBron's roster when he first started, but he took that team. He took them all the way to the finals one year where they got to play the Spurs and they got swept by the Spurs, of course. I think that was in 2004. No, not in 2004. I can't remember exactly. I didn't Google hardly any of this because I just, this is how much I just love LeBron James, okay? So they get swept by the Spurs. I think, I think 0-4 because they went 0-4, but you know, they didn't win a single game in that finals. Nonetheless, I was so excited to see him go to Miami where he would take his talents to South Beach and he'd actually get to play with a roster that was relevant. He'd get to go play with the likes of Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and man, awesome times in South Beach where they won back-to-back -back NBA championships. Uh, but that was a really sweet moment for sure in LeBron's career as he won back-to-back -back championships, his first two rings. But then when he came back to Cleveland, his homecoming, right? And, and one of the greatest moments in sports history where he brought that team back from a 3-1 deficit to the Golden State Warriors. I'm sorry to do you like this, Gary Miller, Tanner Miller, where you are in the stands today. I know you love the Warriors. But man, how good was that block in game seven of the finals when LeBron like sealed the game. It was 89-89 at the time, two, two minutes and change to go in the game. He got the block in Iguodala, which set up Kyrie's step back three over Curry to put them up three points. Awesome. One of the greatest moments in sports history of all time. I'm still excited about it. Isn't that, so now you, you go, you take that and you go to, uh, obviously he's playing for the Los Angeles Lakers now. Playing for the Lake Show, it's showtime down in LA, right? He's, he's partnered up with AD, he has Danny Green. And so right now, uh, LeBron James, he's averaging about 25, seven and 10. So his rebounds are down a little bit. His assists are up a little bit on his career averages, but of course they are, right? He's got Anthony Davis on his team. All he has to do is throw the ball somewhere near the hoop, lob it up somewhere and AD will flush it, guaranteed. And he's got Danny Green who will sit in the corner and just make threes. I think he's shooting like 45% from three this year, which is just insane, right? I don't just know a lot about LeBron as from a basketball standpoint. I also kind of pay attention to his family because you may love Michael Jordan, but he was not the family man that LeBron was. Okay, so uh, LeBron married his high school sweetheart, Savannah. Oh, right. It's touching. Yeah, it's sweet. Uh, they have three kids. Uh, LeBron Jr., who they just call Bronny. 
It's just, he does call him Bronnie. He's in high school now. They just let him get an Instagram account. It's a big step for a parent, right? You have a, you have a kid on the national stage. You let him get on Instagram and kind of have that free will there. It's big. And, and uh, he's, he's playing high school basketball right now. His high school basketball team where he's actually playing with Dwayne Wade's son, Zaire Wade. And they just won the uh, districts for their state. They're probably going to go on to win the state tournament in California. Pretty impressive. Uh, Br- uh, Bryce... Bryce is his second son. Bryce, not as popular on the basketball circuit at this point because he's still in middle school, middle school, but he is popular on TikTok. He's got some crazy dance moves that everyone's following him on TikTok. Uh, but really the entertainer in the family is Zuri, LeBron's daughter. Zuri has a YouTube account called All Things Zuri, and she has 147,000 subscribers to her YouTube channel. Now to put that in perspective for you, our church YouTube account here, GSC Loveland, if you want to follow it, has 21. (laughs) So if you want to like and subscribe, that would really help make that number not so pitiful. Um, So if I were to roll up to LeBron's house, it's somewhere in LA, I think, it could be in the surrounding area, I really have no idea. If I were to somehow get past security, if I were to somehow be able to like get my way to his front door, knock on that front door. And if he were to be the one who answered the door and I was like, man, what's up, LeBron? How you doing? Hey, you guys are having a great year this year. Number one in the West, huh? Number two to who? Anyone know who number two is in the West right now in basketball? The Nuggets. Come on, Colorado. Nobody cares about basketball. We're going to work on it. Okay. We're going to work on it. I was like, man, what's up? How? Dude, you got to be pretty excited about what happened at Sierra Canyon, right? Uh, Bronny's doing pretty good. They're playing pretty well this year. He's only a freshman. That's exciting. How's Zuri doing? Is she going to, you going to get on another YouTube cooking channel with her? That was so awesome. I love when you guys do that. What's the, is Savannah home? What do you all got going on the rest of the day? If I were to start talking to LeBron like that, if I didn't get tased by his security, <laughs> LeBron would have to eventually stop me and go, I'm sorry, who are you? Like, like he doesn't know me and I don't know him. I know a lot about him, but I don't know him at all. And it's this reality that, that we can let bleed into our faith sometimes where we can know a lot about God. We can know a lot of the songs. We can know how to act the behaviors in church. We can know a lot of the stories in the Bible, but that's not our call is to know a lot about God. Our call is to know him, to know him, to know him personally and to know him deeply And our culture, our society has made it so easy to know about a lot of people around us. You think about Facebook and Instagram and you have hundreds, maybe thousands of followers, people who are following your story. You have maybe thousands of friends on Facebook that you keep track of what's going on in their life. You know all about what's going on. You know about that kid they just had, that that place they just moved to, that neighborhood they're living in, but you don't actually know them. I have so many friends on Facebook and I was actually thinking about this week, like how many of these people do I actually know? Like I know what's going on in their heart. I know what cool things are happening. in their life. I don't just, I don't just know the Facebook like highlight reel. I actually know who they are. I know their interests. I know, I know what drives them crazy. I know what makes them tick. And so we live in this world where it's so easy to know about people and, and it's not often being presented to us as the right thing to, to just get with people and to know them. And so it creeps into our faith. We, we, we have this tendency to, man, you might, you might have tons of the Bible memorized. You might have tons of uh, church friends who all look like you. And you might come here every Sunday. And, and those are all good things, but they're not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is to know the one who made you. 
to know the one who's called you. He longs to have this deep and intimate personal relationship with you. And so this I Am series, um, we're going we're gonna to be unpacking the seven I Am statements in the book of John starting next week. But this week, what I would like to do is I would just like to unpack the significance of the phrasing I Am. Where does that come from? What does it mean? And we're going to see that there's a lot more to it than Jesus just calling himself something. He's actually naming himself something. And so um, we're going to, like I said, open up to the book of John. Uh, before we get there, though, before we open it up, there's, there's a phrase that John the Baptist says. So John the Baptist, not the author of the book of John. And like, listen, I'm sorry, the Bible does this, okay? There's a lot of duplicate names. There's a lot of names that get changed. It makes it hard. You know what I mean? Doesn't it? It's like, okay, wait, is this, is this Cephas, Peter? What, like, what, what's happening right now? Which John wrote this? And it's just kind of something we got to deal with and something that we're going to kind of learn about and push through because God's going to be honored and glorified all the more while we press in and try and learn more about him. So John the Baptist, he's baptizing people. You know, he's got this crazy look about him. He's kind of a weird guy all, all, in all things considered, right? I mean, he's got all sorts of things that are going on about his outfit and his hair and his look and everything, what he eats, his diet's just crazy. But he sees Jesus coming one day and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I love this idea of behold. Behold, it just means to look, look upon. Like with this great expectation, with this great anticipation to understand the value of what we're looking at. And so my invitation over the next seven weeks is that we just might, as a body of believers, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That we might just look at Jesus, that we might just fix our eyes on him, gaze upon him and see what he might have to offer us in this time. So that's where we're going. So jump in John chapter eight, because Jesus is not, like I said, Jesus is not just saying I am as in he's calling himself something. He's not just giving himself kind of this title. What he's trying to do when he uses the phrase I am is he's trying to pull our minds back to a previous thing that God said about himself. So if I could kind of put this in a more like culturally uh, like relevant story. Um, if you came to one of my slow pitch softball games this summer, right? Yeah, it's awesome. And you were there, you were rooting for me in the stands and and I'm in the, I'm in the, you know, I'm on deck. I'm in the warm-up circle. I'm timing out the pitcher as you do in slow pitch softball. You don't do that. Like it's just slow pitch. I'm just kidding. Nobody thought that was funny. Um, so I'm sitting there timing out the pitches. Let's say the bases are loaded. Okay, bases are loaded. It's the bottom of the seventh because we only play seven innings, and because uh, we're adults and grown up and we don't want to get hurt. You know, that's the main objective of slow pitch softball. And as, as I'm walking up to the plate, it's, it's my turn to be up. And if I just pointed my bat at you and I was just like, I am the great Bambino. <laughs> See, like what would happen is you would be seeing me in front of you, but in your mind, you'd be going, did he just call himself Babe Ruth? Did he just call himself the Colossus of Clout? Did he, just, like, did he really just say that about himself? So, so in your mind's eye, you'd be seeing me, but you'd be picturing something different. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, okay, so younger people in the room who you may, might not know who Babe Ruth is, which the fact that that's a reality is just sad in my heart. <laughs> but let's say for a second, if I were to grab this mic right over here and I was like, listen, I feel a little J-Beebs coming on. You would see me, but who would you be expecting to hear? Justin Bieber. Now, I'm not about to start singing his new Changes album, okay? But if we were lacing up sneakers later on a basketball court and I was like, listen, you better be careful today. I'm feeling like Dr. J. You'd be looking at me. You'd be seeing Austin. But what you'd expect to see is who? 
Julius Irving out on the court. You expect to see these just like big hands doing these crazy like reverse layups and stuff. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, I am. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to pull our attention. He's trying to pull the attention of the Pharisees. He's trying to pull like the audience that's reading this story. He's trying to take it, take what's happening right in front of him. He's trying to say, get your eyes off the carpenter. Get your eyes off this person and look back to what God said about himself. So John chapter eight, you're probably already there because I've said it like four times now, but John chapter eight, starting in verse 53. We're going to pick it up. There's a pretty sharp exchange going on at this point where we're picking it up in the story between the Pharisees and Jesus. It starts with Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. The Pharisees are like, what? You can't just like say that about yourself. You don't have any witnesses to back that up. And then, and then uh, how many of you have been in like a really good argument recently? Just be honest for a moment. Like you've been in a sharp disagreement with somebody recently. Okay, there's some shameful hands, some spouses that are both raising their hands. We're not going to assume that it was with each other, okay? We're just going to assume that you fought with somebody else at different times. But like, you ever been in that argument where you just, you start saying stuff and, it's, and it just gets crazy? Like the whole conversation just disintegrates and you're just like, how did, how did we get here? Right, like maybe you started arguing about whether or not pickles were on the grocery list. And then eventually you like go on in the argument and it gets to this point where I'm just like, so you don't even like me. Is that, is that it? Is that what I gather? You just think I'm dumb. And you're like, what's happening right now? That's kind of what's going on here with this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees because he's talking about being the light of the world. And then he's, Jesus is like, you know what your problem is, Pharisees? Your father's the devil. Like not a good day if Jesus is like, yo, your father's the devil. Even worse day if you follow up what Jesus said with what the Pharisees came back to Jesus with where they're like, oh, Jesus, I see this is getting out of hand. Uh, we, I see what's happening here. You're just possessed by a demon. So it'd be a really bad day if Jesus says your father's the devil. It'd be a much worse day if you accuse Jesus of being, uh, you know, possessed by a demon. So that's where we're picking up this conversation because Jesus says something about uh, being greater than Abraham, that he's not going to taste death. And in 53, it says, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? So you remember Father Abraham, we talked about him last week, the father of the Hebrew nation, the father of Israel. Like he's, he's the stuff legends are made of for these Pharisees. Like they're, and they're like, what are you, you're not gonna taste death? Like you think you're better than Abraham? Even he died and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be, Jesus? And he answered them, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. Do you see Jesus beginning to tease out the difference between an impersonal knowledge and a personal knowledge? You don't know my father, but I know him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad because again, last week, Abraham lived by faith in a promise that was yet to come. So the Jews said to him, I, this is so funny. You are not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? Like they're so literal. Like there's so many just like, they take everything so literally, right? And it's just like, they're like, wait a sec, how old are you? And Abraham was like thousands of years before this, right? And he's like, he's like, wait, you haven't, huh? How old are you, Jesus? I just think that's funny. They're asking him if he's 50 or not. And it's like, that's not, the, that's not the point. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you don't have to be uh, 
a like professor of Hebrew, you don't have to even really understand a lot of what the Bible says to understand that something about what Jesus just said there in his reply doesn't make sense just in English. Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am? Like that doesn't make, is there a typo here? Like did something happen? Because it should say something like, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I was. Or before Abraham was, I, like I was there. I existed before him, but he doesn't say that. He says before Abraham was, I am. I am. And what he's getting at there is, a, is something that God said to Moses in the book of Exodus. So flip on over to Exodus chapter three. We're gonna read about where this story takes place in live time. Exodus chapter three, we're going to pick it up in verse, what do I have it starting? 10, verse 10. Right, this is this crazy encounter with Moses and God is in the, is speaking to him from this burning bush, right? And the bush is on fire, yet it's not being consumed. And it's something crazy is happening here. And God is saying to Moses, I've seen your people. I've seen the afflictions in, that are happening to you in Egypt and I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. And God says in verse 10, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, pay attention to this response, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he, say, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Scholars would say another way that you could translate this is I be who I be. How awesome is that? I be who I be. Who can say that? And so let me, I want to take in the next few moments to try and explain to you what this phrase means. But just know that this phrase in its nature is confusing. This is what, um, this is what John Calvin says about this description of God that he gives about himself, that God uh, gives this description, this description given by God ensures that our minds may be filled with admiration as often as his incomprehensible essence is mentioned. I am who I am. What does that mean? Well, part of it means that we're just going to be filled with admiration as often as his incomprehensible essence is mentioned. So if I were to take one of you to coffee, and we were to sit down and I were to say, hey, who are you? Tell me a little bit about yourself. You might first start with a name. I am Austin. My name is Austin Dykeman. And so part of in that answer, you're going to get to know what people call me. And you're going to get to know maybe my family of origin. You might know a little bit more about my story just by hearing my name. Then most often what's going to happen if you take somebody to coffee and you ask who they are, is they're not actually going to answer who they are with who they are. They're going to answer who they are by what we do. My name's Austin, and, and I'm a pastor, and I have a wife, and her name's Katie, and we have three kids. I'm a father. I'm a husband. And we start to answer, and you might answer what your profession is. You start to answer who we are by the things that we do. So, so our identity, check this, is reliant on external factors to help define who we are. 
So I can't answer the question, who am I, without pointing to these external things. I'm 29 years old, which all I'm saying is that I've been on this rock uh, for 29 trips around the sun. That's how old I am. It's an external factor that helps define who I am. God doesn't do that. God validates who he is with who he is. It's the most, John Piper says it this way, I am who I am. Um, There is nothing more basic, there is nothing more ultimate than the fact that God absolutely is. There is nothing beneath the fact that God is and there is, and everything that exists is built on on the foundation of the reality that is God. So, I'm going to try for the next couple minutes to explain who God is, but just keep in mind that I can only, in my, in, like in my finite little brain, I can only use external factors to try and explain to you who God is. And that's not the way that God defines himself because his thoughts are not like my thoughts. His ways are not like my ways. He's infinitely far above who I am and, and my little pea-sized brain's understanding of what he's doing on this earth. And if all of us, even if we gathered together and we tried to explain who God was, we'd only ever in a lifetime get to scratch the surface of who he actually is. It's part of the reason why I think it's going to be eternity with him, just to try and figure out what he's like really, because it's going to take just that long. So God is not reliant on anything and everything relies on him. There is nothing in creation, there's nothing in the universe that exists outside of the fact that he wants it to exist. Everything, every heartbeat, every breath relies on the fact that God is providing and sustaining all of that, yet God needs none of that. He's completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need a thing. God was never born and he will never die. God, God was created, he's outside of time and space. He was not created like you and me. You have a start date, you will have an end date in your body. That is not the case with God. God has never started. He will never cease to exist. He's always been. He's outside of time. And that's something that really messes with my kids. You start to say to them, when was God born? He wasn't. He just always was. So when did, no, no, you didn't hear me. He never started. God is not becoming anything. He's not maturing to be anything like you and I. You and I are learning, we're growing, our bodies are changing. God always has been, he always will be perfect. In perfection, in the definition of perfection, he's not getting more perfect. He cannot get more perfect. He cannot get less perfect. He's immutable, he's unchanging. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He always has been, he always will be perfection. And because of that, he is the absolute definition of truth. Whatever God decides is true, is true. We don't get to take our version of reality and try and use it to define God. God uses all the reality around us to define who he is. God is abundantly more, abundantly greater. He's far more than we could ever ask, ever imagine. To go back to last, the last series, he's all powerful. There's nothing that can stop him. There's no force that can move him. Not only can nothing stop him, you can't even slow him down. He does what he wishes. He does what he pleases. He's always present. There's no space that you can step into in this world where he is not. He's there. He's been there before you. He goes before you. He will be there after you're gone. And because of all these different things that, again, I'm trying to use my human definitions of what I see in reality of time and of eight, like space and all these different things of power, I'm trying to use my understanding of them to project them onto God. And so it's not even sufficient, Right? 
And that's why God doesn't validate himself by what I say about him. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need us. He defines who he is and he validates who he is. He validates his being with himself. I am who I am. And so what I want you to capture and what I want you to understand as we go forward through this series for the next seven weeks is that Jesus is not just making a statement about who, like he's not just making a statement, I am the bread of life. He's, he's calling back, he's using that I am phrase to draw our minds back to the fact that Jesus is the great I am. Jesus is also God. You see, because uh, we're going to be looking through the seven I am statements, which are found in the book of John, all, all of them. Now, John's gospel is unique to the other, the other three gospels. There's four gospels in total, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't know this, let me just tell you. Um, they all kind of vary in what details they capture. It would be the same as if I gave uh, three of you and myself and I gave us all a notepad and I said, hey, we're going to follow Katie around for the next couple weeks and I want you just to write everything that you notice about her. And, and if I gave one notepad to her parents, they're going to capture details in a certain way. If I gave some to her friends, they're going to capture details in a certain way. But if you gave a notepad to me, like, like Jim, you might write about uh, how proud you are of what Katie accomplished and the different things that you saw her doing. And you might capture some of the details of her life that you saw, where she went, what she did, who she ran with, the stories that she encountered. If I gave it to somebody who's one of her friends and you followed Katie around, you wrote, you'd be like, man, here's the things that we did. Here's the people that we saw. Here's the lives that we touched. And you might write, write about it that way. But if you gave a notepad to me, Ain't nobody else making it into that notepad. Like, I'm going to be fixed on her. It's going to be a story all about her. Nobody else is even going to be mentioned in that story. And it's kind of what happens in John's gospel. John writes about Jesus, the person. He writes about Jesus as God. And he's so caught up with this idea that, man, Jesus was human and he was God. And that's all that's in his gospel. There's not a lot about the kingdom. There's not a lot about the other disciples. There's not a lot about a lot other stuff about the ministry they did and the things they accomplished. He's just dialed in, focused in on Jesus. Why? Because he's showing us that Jesus made these claims that he is God. He's God. And it's significant because nobody in history would really dispute the idea, would dispute the fact that Jesus, the person, existed. And where you get yourself into some fights is when you start to say that that person is God. Because Jesus was either crazy or he was right. He, he, there, there's no neutrality here. He was either crazy. He made these bold claims that the, the Father and I are one, that, that he is, I am who I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He made these claims of being God. So it was either crazy or he was not. And like, look, cards on the table, okay? Here's where we're going the next seven weeks. If you haven't done the math already, we're gonna land somewhere near Easter. And Easter Sunday, what we're gonna do is we're gonna get up in this room. Y'all are gonna be dressed a little bit nicer than you are today. And we are gonna sing until our lungs give out. We're gonna shout because we're so excited. We're gonna stand up. We're gonna applaud the fact that our God did not stay dead, that the tomb was empty that Jesus was who he says he was, that he buried sin and shame in the grave and he stepped out victorious and now he invites us into this abundant life. Because Jesus was not just a person, he was God. And that's what I want you to think of every time you see the two words, I am, over the next seven weeks. Before we go there, let me just point out to you a couple hurdles that will be in the way as we go. So for the next 10 minutes as we're wrapping up today, I just want to point out to you, there's, there's going to be a couple hurdles in your way. Um, 
I don't know about you, but I got this kind of dark part of my heart. I love those uh, track videos, especially of like middle schoolers when they're running like the 100 meter, hur 100 meter hurdles and they're just like eating it hurdle after hurdle after hurdle. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, have you ever seen, you should YouTube them after this, where just like that girl falls on the hurdles and, you know, she gets back up and she falls on the next hurdle. And I just don't want that to be you over the next seven weeks. What I want this to look like is I want you to see the hurdles, see the things that stand in the way of you beholding the Lamb of God and actually looking at him, gazing upon him. And I want you to avoid those hurdles. I want you to clear them with grace. And I want us all to press in because, okay, so there's, there's maybe a few different groups of what I'd long to see over this next seven weeks. There's some of you, man, most of you in this room, you already know him. You already know him. And my hope is that we just might, by the grace of God, fix our eyes and our hearts on him and that we might just know him deeper. That's my hope over the next seven weeks for most of us that we might know him deeper. There's some of you that are probably in this category where like maybe your parents know him or your spouse knows him really well. So you come to church every week to make them happy or because they make you, right? And so what I want you to consider, students in the room, this is especially you, like, like would you come to church in the morning if your parents didn't wake you up and bring you here? And, and, and listen, I, I believe the answer for a lot of you students in the room, the answer is both. Like it's yes, it's both. Like I, I come because I love Jesus and I come because my parents make me. But my hope is over this next seven weeks that you might personally behold the Lamb that you might personally just come to the spot where you just look at him and you go, no, 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 I, I want that for myself. Forget, forget what my parents do. If they fall away, I'm pressing on. If I go off, I graduate from high school, it doesn't, I'm not stopping this. I'm pressing on, I'm continuing because I've seen his face. There's some of you in the room and you don't, you don't believe any of this. You don't believe the whole biblical story. You don't believe that God would step down as a man put on human flesh to take on the sin of the world to only to raise triumphantly over death. And my hope and my prayer for all of you is that you might just behold the lamb for the first time. For the first time, maybe just, you might just see him and you might see all that he has for you and for your life and for eternity. And so again, the hurdles, there's hurdles in the way. What are the hurdles? There's two of them that Exodus points out, Moses points out in his story. The first thing God's like, hey, you're gonna go speak to Pharaoh. What's the first thing out of Moses' mouth? Who am I? Who am I? Listen to me, as long as your gaze is so fixed on you, you will miss the things that will come with fixing your eyes on the creator. Uh, John hit on this when he was talking about Cain and Abel. Like, like when we get downcast, when we get so fixed on like what's happening below, we only see ourselves. We only see ourselves. And so the challenge, the drift in every heart is gonna to be to get your eyes off of you. It might be insecurity, it might be self-doubt. How in the world is the God of the universe, why does he want anything to do with me? It's not about you. It's about what God wants to do through you. And, and you could take this on the other side of the equation. Maybe it's not insecurity that you struggle with. Maybe it's something that like the Pharisees struggled with. See, because the Pharisees, they looked at themselves and they thought, man, I look pretty good. I'm actually pretty awesome, all things considered. Might have the first five books of the Bible memorized. I'm certainly more holy than all these other people around me. I fast, I tithe, all this other stuff is going on. I'm good. And Jesus says to them, you don't know him. You don't know him. Again, the point is not to, uh, for us to get so fixed on ourselves, our insecurity or the things that make us secure because we do all these Christian things. The goal is to get our eyes off of ourselves and onto the one who made us. 
And so that's hurdle number one. Your eyes are going to be shifty. They're mostly going to end up looking in the mirror at yourself. And we need to fight that tendency. We need to focus on what Jesus is going to do in this time. The second hurdle that we're going to have is, uh, he doesn't say this in this way, but basically what he says is, what will people think? Right, because he starts to say, oh, well, if they start asking questions, then what should I say? And what he's really getting at there is, what will people think of me? And as long as fear of man is what's driving your life, as long as you're afraid of what other people might think of you, well, if I, if I really pressed in, if I really started going to church, if I, if I started calling myself a Christian, what would that mean for this relationship? That person might think I'm crazy. Could I really keep participating in this behavior? Could I really keep doing this thing? What will they think of me? And those will be the two hurdles. The two main hurdles that stand in your way are who am I and what will they think? And the answer to both is that I hope you can see this. The answer to both is lifting our eyes above those two circumstances and seeing that, that um, God's original promise to Moses before he says who he is, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Moses says, who am I that I should go? Verse 12, he said, I will be with you. So what I want you to understand today and what I want you to embrace before we embark on the rest of this series is that God has made a promise to be with you. He didn't just make this promise to Moses. He also made it to you because Jesus' name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so what I want you to see is that God has made a promise to be with you in sending his son Jesus to the world because Jesus even says about himself, again, he's not just saying, I am the bread of life. What he's saying is, I'm the God who will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. Jesus isn't just saying, I am the good shepherd. He's saying, I, I am the one who loves his followers and will lay his life down for them. He's not just saying, I am the light of the world. It's not just a person saying, I am the light of the world. What he's saying is, I am God who brings hope into this dark, defeated place. And I've brought my light. And, and so... I hope as we go on this series, what you will look for and what you will notice is that it's not just Jesus the carpenter. It's not just Jesus the staff-holding, sheep-cuddling dude that's going with us. It's the God of the universe who's offering to be with you. And once you start to embrace that, once you start to see that, you will get your eyes off yourself and you'll be fixed on what he's doing and, you'll get you, and you won't care what other people think because he's the God of the universe who, who we can't fully describe we can't, we can't even grasp his magnitude. He's an inexhaustible well of joy. He's, a, he's, he's so rich and wonderful if we would only just behold and look and gaze upon his face. Would you stand as I'm going to pray for us as we leave? Jesus, my prayer this morning really my prayer all week, this is, not a, uh, this is not a logical adventure that we're going to go on. This isn't a quest to understand more of the Bible. This isn't just an accumulation of facts that we're after, God. We're after you. I mean, God, as I look out at the faces and the people, I just pray that there would be a personal craving for your presence and for your godliness to show up in these people's lives. Would your Holy Spirit break through? 
Come, Jesus. We ask that you would just open up our hearts, unlock our ears, open our eyes up so that we might see you. Maybe for the first time, but, but for most of these people, God, I just ask that they might know you deeper, that they might come to a greater depth in their relationship with you. We ask, God, that your grace and your Holy Spirit would sustain us, would empower us, and would take us exactly where it is that we need to go. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.